Democracy and Education, Standing Up to Extremists in the Conejo Valley. Hi, and welcome to Democracy and Education, a podcast for those standing up for public schools. I am Karen Chenoweth, and I started Democracy and Education to provide information to school board candidates and their supporters. You can find a lot more information at www.assistdemocracy.org, A-S-S-I-S-T, democracy.org, including a way to connect directly to a community of folks around the country. For those of you who are newly facing what seems to be a bizarre attack on your public schools from out of the blue, the fact is, this is not a new attack. It has historical roots, and we will try to explore that in a future episode. But today, I'm bringing you the story of a group of people who found themselves surprised by the virulence of the attack against their schools back in 2016. That's the year right-wing extremists took the majority of school board seats they almost immediately began attacking teachers and criticizing the books they were using in the classroom. If that sounds familiar, it is now happening all over the country in a national effort to undermine confidence in public schools. So today we'll hear from a group of folks who have spent years coordinating local efforts to alert their neighbors, friends, and allies to the extremist threat against their schools. In 2018, they won back the majority of the school board. In 2020, they won back the entire school board, and they held on to it in 2022. They succeeded partly on drawing on the deep conviction most Americans have that public schools are a public good that deserves the support of the entire community. But there's a lot more to the story. We basically recreated politics, right? That is Betsy Connolly, who was elected to the Conejo Valley School Board in 2008 and served on it until 2020. We're going to hear a lot from her, but we will also bring in other voices, a parent, a former student, a current school board member, and the other people who worked with Betsy Connolly to take back the board from the extremists. So first off, Conejo Valley is northwest of Los Angeles in Ventura County. Southern California is often thought to be a liberal stronghold, but it is far from being monolithic. This is a community with some pretty deep conservative roots. And when I first moved here in 1990, uh, Democrats hid in the shadows. It was much more conservative. So we're a purple community and we're becoming more progressive and less conservative over time. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Betsy Connolly was a veterinarian and a school parent. After she closed her private practice and began teaching at local colleges, a friend told her she should run for school board. And she did. And she won in 2008. At that time, she told me, there was one member of the five-member board who she now recognizes as having been part of an extreme fringe. Now we recognize them as Tea Party or fringe right. I'm not sure we had those words at the time, but we now recognize that that was uh, the world that he was coming from, a kind of an anti-government philosophy. He sort of filled that crazy uncle role that uh, you can ignore him most of the time. And it was not a major impediment to the well-functioning of the board. In 2012, I was reelected and the person that I ran kind of like a slate, her name, Peggy Buckles, she was reelected and things stayed very stable. But two years after that, one of the more progressive board members retired and we had a, a very heated election season. The new member of the board had run and won as a fiscal conservative. We have a board of five and two were very conservative, but 
for the most part, we sort of did the same thing that we'd done in the past, collegial and focused on uh, student achievement and on uh, hiring the best uh, teachers, uh, the best educators, just like every other school board in America. People who run for school board, by and large, aren't highly partisan political people. They're mostly people who have experience with the schools, believe in the promise of public education, and are volunteering their time and expertise outside of education to, to make keep the schools good. A lot of times they had kids that graduated from the schools, and it's viewed as a paying back opportunity. But controversy came to us. And in that process, we began to see the the real political leanings, the real social political leanings of the members of the board. The Conejo Valley has as its main town Thousand Oaks a couple of miles outside of Thousand Oaks, David Lane, who started something called the American Renewal Project. His focus, at least for a while, was on this idea of getting conservative Christian pastors to run for local public office, city councils, school boards, rec and park, that kind of thing. When I went to the American Renewal Project's website, I couldn't find the usual kinds of things most organizations have, a mission statement, a staff list, a list of donors. But there is a call to pastors to join together in prayer breakfasts and to become involved in politics. One of the pastors who got involved in politics was Rob McCoy of Godspeak Church in Thousand Oaks. Godspeak seems to be a big church, And I watched a couple of the sermons posted on the Godspeak website. I won't go through everything I saw, but Pastor McCoy brags about being banned from YouTube. And from what I can tell, it was for spreading COVID conspiracy theories. He talks about opposing the tyranny of the U.S. government. The church's website calls for the Bible to be made central to political decisions And the webpage of the Ministry for Women calls on women to be obedient to their husbands. Godspeak has become a major force in the Conejo Valley. Okay, so in 2014, the Conejo Valley School Board had two right-wing extremists on it, but they were still in the minority. Then the state of California enacted some... uh, laws at the legislative, at the state legislature level that were intended to, I'm going to say the word force, they were intended to force school districts, reluctant school districts, to change some of their policies. For instance, in uh, same-sex facilities like locker rooms and bathrooms, to permit students to use the facility that corresponded to their gender identity, right? And so social change came to us. That legislation became a focal point, but that's not all. In 2016, they totally outplayed us. The conservative element in our community created a a unified grievance front. So anyone who had any reason not to be happy with the school district, it didn't have to have anything to do with the, the newly emerging progressive issues like gender identity or social emotional learning. It didn't have to have to do with that. It, it included a union that represents our classified workers, our plumbers and our carpenters and that sort of thing. It included neighborhoods where we had classes at converted elementary schools for students who were struggling i.e. undesirable. It included a, a, a neighborhood where the elementary school was on a long-term lease to a private school. 
because we because of long-term declining enrollment wasn't needed by the school district. So they they were very good at what they did. They they collected up anyone who was unhappy for any reason and they promised them that their issue would be resolved when they took control over the board. So uh, they took control over the board. She said nothing during the campaign about her conservative affiliations or her intention to ban books or uh, nothing. But when she was elected and they had the majority, it's it's as if they took off their costumes and all hell broke loose. And then the community was shocked. I was furious. And the painful part of that was not the angry uh, mob of uh, the uh, grievance mob. It was how members of the community that were natural allies to Peggy and I, they didn't go against us. They just went silent. And we experienced a a sort of an evaporation of willingness to engage in the uh, in the effort to see us both reelected. It was just too unpleasant and too uncomfortable and too unsure that your friends agreed with you or not. And it was sort of viewed as a kind of like an impolite, I don't really want to get involved. I like everyone. And we we just could not get any traction on calling uh, out an alarm for what was happening. The community wasn't taking a good hard look at either the state of the board or the candidate who wound up winning. Um, she put an apple on her signs and she looked like to all the world, like just this normal wannabe school board trustee, but then she won and, uh, and she created a three person majority uh, for censorship and for you know, just atrocious behavior. And we didn't wake up until it had happened. Um, but once it did, like many communities are doing right now, we woke up. Uh, 2017, we woke up. My name is John Cummings, and I am the co-founder of the Indivisible Group in the Conejo Valley, which is called Indivisible Conejo. Indivisible is a loosely connected series of local organizations all over the country that started after the 2016 election of Donald Trump. One example of something that John Cummings calls atrocious behavior was when the new president of the school board said that he would not vote to implement the state's FAIR Act. This was a law that had passed in 2011 that had directed local school boards to ensure that social studies curricula included the contributions to California and the United States of, among others, gay people. The new board president said that it violated his faith. So he got into an email conversation with a local mom uh, in which he finally said, um, where I spend eternity is far more important to me than being a school board trustee. And, and that, that set the community on fire a little bit because here was a trustee in you know, this, this upper middle class suburb in California saying, that he was going to make policy from a Christian right perspective, just flat out saying it. Um, so that was that was one bit of behavior that really clued us into what we had to look forward to right after this this conservative majority took hold. Another example of what John Cummings calls atrocious behavior is that when a mom blogger criticized the board president, he complained to her employer a contractor with the school system. He threatened to pull the school district's business from her employer if they didn't keep their employee from criticizing him in her personal blog. That attempt to use his power to stifle dissent was censured by the rest of the board. 
By the way, a local newspaper documented much of this, and I will put links into the show notes. But the real fight came when the school board attempted to put what John Cummings calls a soft ban on books. Today, extremist boards are flat out trying to ban books from school and classroom libraries, but this was back in 2016, and it wasn't quite that blatant. The fight started with the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian by Sherman Alexie. It's a very good book. It's a very good book. It was, for a while, it was the most popular book in the Conejo Valley, thanks to that conservative school board. Um, anyway, so, so what happened was that that book had been um, requested by a teacher to become part of the district curriculum uh, for ninth grade. And, you know, they were looking for a book to challenge um, because they clearly had a strategy in mind. And so this was the book that they hit upon. And so um, there's nothing in the book that is outrageous. There is nothing that isn't the lived experience of every boy in, you know, in the country. Um, their hope was to actually not approve it um, for use in the schools. But they realized they didn't really have a good mechanism in place to reject the book. So, so they decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to allow this book to enter the curriculum, but as a price for doing so, we are going to begin establishing a, a thorough policy allowing parents to opt out of books for their kids that they don't like. At first, the school board set up a panel of parents and teachers to review how books were approved. And then after the panel presented their work, the school board majority threw out their proposals and substituted their own. Mind you, parents had always had the right to ask that their child not be required to read a particular book. But now the school board required that teachers get parental okays for any book that might have some content that some parents might object to a suicide, a mention of body parts. It also required that teachers provide alternate books and assignments for any book a parent didn't approve of. That extra work served to discourage teachers from assigning books that someone might object to. And the school board objected to lots of books, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini, and Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson. The vast majority of them, as you would imagine from the current you know, some censorship wars going on all over the country, most of them were by writers of color uh, and or had to do with LGBTQ issues. Students in Caneo Valley were paying attention. It was huge. I mean, a lot of people would just continuously like... Um, like just go to school board meetings and I would see it on social media. And there were a lot of people who were very, very angry. My name is Catherine Chu. I am a current student at the University of Southern California. And I am a graduate and an alum from Westlake High School in the Caneo Valley Unified School District. Catherine was an eighth grader at the time. And it was, like, really upsetting to me that, like, we were, like, that these, like, texts were being, like, fought over and, like, we couldn't learn about, like, certain material because some people didn't want us to learn about it. The same school board meetings that upset Catherine Shu because she saw that people in power had the ability to truncate her education hit parent Linda Carl a little differently. Her son, who has multiple disabilities, had never been able to attend school in the district. He instead had been shuttled from school to school around the county. And he wasn't the only student in that situation. She had recently linked up with other parents of students with multiple disabilities to advocate for their children. And she saw the debate about books as a distraction from the real issues affecting her children. My name is Linda Carl. Primarily, more important than anything, I'm a parent. I'm a community member. And I have um, 
got myself involved in the community activities and the community activism, if you want, due to the needs of my family. Today, she is president of Adelante Comunidad Conejo, which started as a way to ensure that Latinos in the Conejo Valley had a voice in public decisions. But back in 2016, Linda Carl was just a parent who was learning to advocate for her oldest son. She was shocked when she attended a school board meeting. The person I was there with was there to advocate for kids with disabilities. And the pushback and the no, 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 blah, blah, blah. And in those days, the big issue was about literacy and the reading and what books the kids are reading. And one of the board members have gone as far as to marking books, uh, somehow contravening the law. At that time, I couldn't really understand much of what was going on. That environment of fighting and argumentation and this and was like, wow. What is this? The school board majority was encouraging parents to file complaints against teachers, and someone started a private Facebook group where parents and teachers could voice concerns about the school board. And now I'm going to let Betsy Connolly talk for a while about what happened next. All of 2017, people were coming to me, teachers, uh, parents, and they were saying, what are we going to do about this? And And of course, I was still fairly grumpy at that time. And I was like, why are you coming to me, right? Uh, You made this happen, right? You fix it, you fix it. But it kept happening over and over and over again. And finally, we just got to the point where I was like, okay, no one else is gonna step up. We're not gonna solve this problem any other way. And I'm gonna have to get back in right, to uh, helping figure out what to do. In 2018, that began. And so we had this sort of underground network uh, of communication that was going on. And so I reached out to those people. I reached out to people that I knew in other areas of politics. And we had a meeting, a secret meeting, And we called it the smoke-filled room. Fifteen people that I absolutely trusted. That was the thing they had to be. They had to believe that what was happening was not okay. And they had I had to trust them because I knew that we were putting people in harm's way. And this was one of the hardest things for me in this in this dark period, is that Real people, you know, whose jobs were at stake, whose careers were at stake, whose kids' safety, emotional and physical, were at stake, were in harm's way. For me, the stakes were very, very high for not allowing, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure for, why don't you, teacher who teaches English, um, why don't you come to the board meeting or and say something or write a letter to the editor and and you know easy to say <laughs> when it's not your job right and it's your not not your family's safety and security uh, that is at stake and so this group of fifteen we kicked around what we might be able to do and tried to build consensus around the idea of recruiting and supporting potential candidates for the November election. And really, we talked mostly about how we would go about, we started by talking about how would we go about doing that? Um, what, what sort of a vetting process? How public would we want it to be? Who would be in control of that? And we came, we, we, we created a basic framework and we launched a series of house meetings. So these were not announced. They, the word was spread privately through trusted contacts and we assembled I'm going to say probably around 80 people, concerned community members, to hear from candidates who wanted to be considered for uh, endorsement 
for the fall election. So we did that in March, April, and May. And uh, we basically recreated politics, right, uh, in a weird way. We ran our own primary. Um, and different members met with the uh, candidates that had thrown their hat in the ring, coached them, advised them, helped them uh, get up to speed. We had a, a group of volunteers who wrote questions for the, you know, so that we could have a panel discussion. And we basically went through a like a board candidate boot camp, followed by a uh, a vetting process because we had more candidates than we had seats. We would have the candidates do their presentation, answer questions, uh, answer follow-up questions, and then the candidates would leave. And we formed these little circle groups and we would discuss what we heard, why, what did we think, what were the pros and cons? What were the concerns? Could we fix the concerns? Uh, and so we went through this process and uh, it, what was, and then we got back into the smoke filled room again, having that feedback and different constituencies like the teachers union, for example, they had favorites, right? And then the Democratic Party, they had favorites. And then uh, parents of, uh, uh, of students that were marginalized in any way due to race, gender identity, whatever, they had preferences, right? And so we tried to suss that out, right? Uh, it was not fun. Um, one of my uh, now good friends who worked in this process with me, John Cummings, I can remember one night after this, and he said to me on the way out, he said, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Uh, it was that hard. It was so, so hard. And I told him, I said, well, we're not going to stop. So you can either be at the table or you cannot be at the table, but this is the process. We, we can't. We can't reinvent another way now. So one of my jobs was having frank conversations with people about what was actually happening. I mean, you could imagine how the candidates felt. They're like, what's this mystery group bossing us around? And we, we made it clear that we were, we, we were going to choose three candidates for three spots. And we had an expectation that if you were not chosen, you would not run. Now, we don't have any uh, way to enforce that, but we were crystal clear during the entire process about what we were trying to accomplish. We wanted three highly qualified, viable candidates, and we wanted to win these seats back. Hard stop. And here's one of those candidates. My name is Marianne Fanzile. I'm from Thousand Oaks, California. I came to this topic when we, the city elected, the school district elected in 2016, three extremist rightist school board members. And there was a school board agenda item called uh, to adopt the FAIR Act, which in California included the teaching of the contributions of LGBTQ plus people in the curriculum. And I attended that meeting where people came to speak and one of our leading pastors of a religious right-wing church who was also on the city council had rallied his members to come and they were saying horrible things at the microphone. And I was there and I turned to a friend of mine and I said, I need to run for school board. This is ridiculous. And she egged me on. Marianne Van Zyl began doing the things you need to do to run for school board, including raising money. And then she became one of the five people seeking the endorsement of that secret primary process. Turns out we actually had a pretty good process for winnowing school board candidates from five kind of progressive or reasonable good governance candidates to three. I wasn't number five, but I wasn't number one or two. I was like number three or four. And I actually had a, a conversation with one of, one of the other candidates. And she was like, 
no one can tell us to not run and no one can make us run. And it's like, oh, I, I have this like, uh, you know, I don't have to run. I was getting feedback that, you know, I wasn't the most likable candidate. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's typical for women here, but it also is hard. And so I, I decided to take a step back from my own candidacy. If I got a seat at the table in the smoke-filled room. Marianne came to me, and this was a very painful and terrible thing for her. She came to me and said, I would like to withdraw, but I have conditions. And uh, she said, I want in the smoke-filled room. She said, I want, I will withdraw as a candidate, but I want to be on the inside for the rest of this process. And she also said she would give the process the $10,000 that she had raised as a candidate so far, which of course was a pretty uh, great offer. So I said, yes. And so Marianne and I started talking about the smoke-filled room and John uh, Cummings too. We started talking about how was this going to be? What should we do now? I mean, we had no idea uh, what we should do now, right? Uh, the teachers had voiced their opinion. We had acquiesced to one of those choices. Um, other things were happening, and we had our three. And we were spreading the word quietly through the Whisper network, right? But this coalition, this smoke-filled room coalition, it wasn't going to hold as a managing entity over the summer and into the fall because we were not natural allies. And in the case of uh, the teachers union, they already had a, a pact. They were already a, uh, an entity of themselves. They couldn't become another thing, right? And same thing with the Democratic Party. They they already had. And so Marianne and I talked about it and we decided that we should form a PAC. And that is how Caneo Together in probably by the time we filed, it was July, how Caneo Together came to be. We took on the a job that we thought was necessary of doing a couple of things. One, to form in ourselves a candidate slate. We didn't think that the candidates were going to do that, and we didn't even think it was necessarily a good idea for the candidates to self-identify their allegiance to each other. We felt we needed to do it, that they, the, these were the chosen ones and we were going to be the official chooser so that others could pile on or not pile on. And so we started the pack and we set up a we set up a website, we started collecting money, and we got ready for filing by helping the candidates craft their statements for the ballot and by starting to spread the word that this uh, group of three was coming. And we spent the early part of the summer recruiting volunteers, doing fundraisers, and getting up to speed on our own marketing. So we hired a company designed a logo, you know, all those things that uh, you have to do if you're starting a company of any kind, right? Set up our website, made decisions about where donations were going to go, that kind of thing. And uh, then our election, our filing takes place early in August, and then we were underway. We created an organization that could fight with not only messaging, but with money. And that was, that was huge for that election. Um, we were able to, we were able to achieve so much in terms of 
the variety of messaging we were able to put out toward the public. Again, social media with with paid ads on Facebook um, and Instagram. Letters to the editor of the local papers, which we just flooded the zone with. Um, and then, you know, Canair Together was able to pay for, for mailers um, that were sent to, you know, basically two-thirds of the electorate. Um, because our, our thinking was always, you know, we need to, we need to reach what we figure is the two-thirds of the electorate that supports sanity and good governance uh, and let the right wing, you know, have its, have, have that other third of, of the electorate. And it wound up to be a successful strategy. One of the things that happened in 2018 when we ran our first successful election was that the negativity on the school board with three conservative school board members, you know, with not backing the FAIR Act and putting together a de facto book ban by, you know, having to have parents affirmatively sign that their children can read this book in high school because there was so much consternation in the community. Higher level electeds knew that the down ballot rates would drive votes. And so we got a lot of support from our assembly member, from our state senator, from our uh, congressional representative, that um, it, it made a difference because the people that listened to them began to pay attention to us. That was a game changer for our community and has been a game changer for the elections ever since. Um, that organization of um, people who are concerned about our public schools and wanting to make sure we had governance that, you know, wasn't ideological, that um, really worked with all folks involved in the system, you know, really supporting our teachers, our students, our families. I am Lisa Powell, and I am a trustee for the Kaneo Valley Unified School District, elected in November 2022. I wasn't one of the key people in that movement that year. You know, I was a helper. You know, I was behind the scenes. I was making phone calls. I was doing grunt work. Um, and so I think we all were just in it and passionate about it. Um, and I think we felt good about it, but so many of us were neophytes in this, you know, and I think, um, again, a, a movement like this had never happened in our community to that scale. So it was just all very new. And so that election night was, I think, euphoric for a lot of people because it was, it was just, we just couldn't believe it, that all three of these, these folks, and they're just really great candidates and good people and made good board members. There were a lot of details to attend to in that 2018 campaign, and Betsy Connolly, as a sitting school board member, knew about a lot of them. First off, what was it a PAC could do legally? We couldn't be a PAC Caneo together. Once we had endorsed candidates, we had to rename our committee those three candidates. And that's the sort of the crucial distinction. I don't know if this is true in every state, uh, but I can tell you that it's true in California, that that's the crucial distinction that allows you to be in direct communication or not. If you're the committee for better government, you cannot coordinate with Jenny, Bill, and Cindy, right? But if you're the committee in support of Jenny, Bill, and Cindy, you can and, and so we structured ourselves that way because we wanted to coordinate with the candidates um, and that we did not want to cheat to do it like so many do. We wanted to actually uh, be coordinating. And, and what that allowed us to do, because uh, we had supporters who had political experience and who had candidate experience and who had education experience, we wanted to make sure that the candidates were fully prepared with whatever it was they needed to be successful. So each one of the candidates had their own platform 
their own skill set, their own perspectives, their own campaign committee, their own supporters, their own fundraising. And we made a decision, Caneo together, Marianne and I, to encourage that, to not interfere with that, that we were a supplement. Caneo together was a supplement to that and that we were also tasking ourselves with two key functions. Uh, Well, three, as it turned out. Uh, One was creating the slate. So we're the source of tying candidates together for identification purposes. So that people who want a quick answer as to who they should be voting for know it's Jenny, Bill, and Cindy, right? And then we branded it with our own Caneo Together brand. And so we started tweeting, we started Facebooking, Instagramming, we and and we started writing letters to the editor and so that we we were creating a common set of expectations for the voters. And then the other thing that we did as as a, a pack and support is we recognized things that weren't right. We realized that none of the candidates had decent photographs. And we knew that they would all be very soon making decisions on their mailers, making decisions on their websites, uh, and on what they were posting on social media. And they had no product. The reason why they were behind, if you want want to call it behind, and I do, um, is they didn't have any experience. They were they were all new, and so so we organized a photo shoot. We found a photographer. We found a videographer. We organized the location. We got the people, the kids, the cute you know, kids and stuff to be and did all the, uh, you know, the sign offs for the permission and all that so that it smoothed the path for the candidates. So we were always looking for opportunities like that. And then in a, in a really great coup, we were able to arrange to rent an empty storefront at our local mall. We called it the headquarters. And that was a place where yard signs from every candidate, bumper stickers from every candidate, uh, campaign materials where people could come to make phone calls to help with whatever was going on. And it became kind of like, uh, we used to joke, it was like cheers, you know, where everyone knew your name. People would come in and they would be, they would say, I can't believe I found my people. They loved being there. We did a lot of postcarding. We probably wrote, uh, our volunteers wrote around 10,000 postcards. Uh, So we had the postcard blanks and the scripts and the colored pens. And people would come there and they would write there instead of going home because it was fun. And we had a kid's play area and, you know, people came to hang out and it built a community of activists all working on these common efforts. We'd have meetings every week. We had um, all kinds of different ways that people could help. And so the headquarters was a big asset because otherwise school board campaigns, they run out of somebody's house, right? I mean, that that's how that, it would be crazy except in the largest city for it to be any other way. And so Caneo Together was able to provide the facility, the common facility. We were able to provide the organization for things like photography and videography. And and, uh, we also were able to identify important contacts and get the word out early about these three candidates being the chosen ones. So we brainstormed lists of people who were influencers in our community, not the new kind of social media influencers, the old kind of social influencers, and 
And various volunteers in our organization said, I know her, I'll call, right? I know him, I'll have lunch with him. I see him, I'll do that. And we put the word out to everyone, whether they were serving in in the state uh, assembly or Senate or in Congress, or whether they were in, in business in our community, what, no matter who they were, we sent an emissary to talk to those people and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we need you on board. This is why you shouldn't endorse any other candidates. We actually have a name for it now. We didn't have a name for it back then. We call it inoculating. So we went out into the community and inoculated people against the opponents and against the anti-public education effort. That's what that whole uh, effort to talk to everyone, literally everyone that we possibly could about what uh, was going on. And that was a lesson learned in 2016 that it's critical not to allow potential allies to stay on the sidelines and that everyone has to pick a side. We did a lot of work building that concept that we needed people's support. And uh, of course, that was an easier sell in, in 2018 because we'd had two years of hair on fire chaos, right? I mean, once you lose control of the board and they they attack teachers and they de facto ban books and they give their pals sweetheart contract deals and stuff, there's a lot you can call attention to. Marianne Van Zyl added one more thing. One of the things that we can do that candidates cannot do as a political action committee. So we can talk about how horrible the other candidates are. The candidates don't want to go negative, but we are totally happy to say, okay, this person uh, was endorsed by Watchmen on the Wall, uh, a conservative right school board group. And by having that ability to actually talk about things candidates don't want to talk about, we're able to provide them support that they need, whether they recognize it or not. So from 2018 to 2020, there was only one extremist on the school board. And I'll tell you, she was amazingly disruptive for one person. She did not go quietly. But still, the board became functional again and focused on issues that mattered to students and families like Linda Carl's. Remember, she was the parent whose oldest child has multiple disabilities. He had been sent out of the district to county facilities all his life, but Caneo Valley set up a program for students with multiple disabilities within the district, and he started attending. Regular school campus for the first time in his life, it brought tears to my eyes because how happy he was. Happiness was coming out of every pore of his body. His eyes were big and shiny and his smile just couldn't stop. Unfortunately, that didn't last long. Her son's health, always fragile, deteriorated. And in 2020, of course, the pandemic hit and he has been fairly isolated ever since. But because the advocacy of parents was acted on by a school board majority no longer focused on censoring high school reading lists, the district was taking responsibility for its students in a way it hadn't before. In 2020, the district went to a system where school board members, instead of running at large, were running in separate areas. Two of the areas in the Caneo Valley were up for election in 2020. Betsy Connolly did not run again. The extremist incumbent did, but this time there was a system in place. In one of the areas that had an opening, there were two candidates and we actually kind of ran a mini primary or a serious vetting to really look at the strengths and weaknesses of those two candidates. A person 
who is a great candidate, may suck at being a school board member, and someone who may be the best school board member may suck at being a candidate. And so we, you know, when we take a look at people who might be candidates, we think about who might be a good school board member and talk about them, their strengths and weaknesses in that regard. Don't really coach them on that too much, but we talk about what it takes to be a good candidate. We don't winnow for people who are good candidates. We look at people who are good school board members, and then we give them advice on running their campaigns. Again, it's just advice. They still run their own campaigns. They still have to file with the FPPC. They still have to uh, raise money. They still have to do their own outreach, but we will support them in the unique ways that it's best for us to support them. In 2020, the Caneo Together candidate narrowly defeated the incumbent extremist by 512 votes. And then Kanea Valley was subject to the same backlash as the nation was. Catherine Shu, who was the eighth grader when the extremist board fought about the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, says that she and some of her fellow students spent a good part of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd thinking about the books they had read in school. And we realized how a lot of the reason why people may be racist or um, may grow up to have a lot of biases is because of lack of education. And we were really like looking back to our own educations and how from a young age, the books that we read really affect how we view the world and how we view like other people in the world as well. So um, initially we pushed for a commitment to racial equity resolution in our school district. And then that included like an emphasis on the inclusion of like at least um, one text per grade level that was written by like an author of like a diverse experience or an underrepresented author. That way, like people can grow up to learn about these diverse experiences instead of having a very one sided like perspective. Or I was a sophomore. Um, when I was working on this campaign. And um, even then, I never read a single book written by like an underrepresented author or like a diverse experience. The students submitted a petition to the school board and put together a curriculum committee to recommend some books that met their criteria at every grade level. They were able to garner a majority of the school board. But in the 2022 election, there was a vigorous election campaign by right-wing extremists, in part as a backlash to that. This narrative that when we recognize and acknowledge someone for all of their qualities, right, we're somehow being racist or whatever the particular form was. I think that's something that uh, we saw build here and I saw play out everywhere. This um, selling of this idea that if you are white or cisgendered, heterosexual, that these acknowledgements of others are an attack on you. The candidates that ran against our three candidates in this election cycle, 2022, um, all spoke frequently about how it was racist to have a club for African-American alliance, right? It was, it was racist. It made, it made people feel bad and it recognized a difference that was not relevant. And I think when, when other groups reached out to us or we talked with our own candidates about strategy, we were very concerned about building campaigns around rebutting the points that the opponents were making about critical race theory and about social emotional learning and about because we felt that they had been chosen those issues had been chosen because they make the voters uncomfortable 
and that engaging on those issues was playing into the hands of the Rob Mob. Rob Mob was what the Caneo Together folks called the followers of that pastor, Rob McCoy, I told you about, who had built up so much political power. That's why we made our Caneo Together 2022 campaign trustworthy. That's what we called our candidates, trustworthy. And we tried to, 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 to hold that line on the idea that these were people who were known in the community, qualified, reliable, sensible, trustworthy, right? Capable. Uh, we had a whole treasure trove of trustworthy pseudonyms, right? Um, because we didn't want to get drug into this manufactured hysteria. One of those candidates who ran on the trustworthy, capable Caneo Together slate was Lisa Powell, who we heard from earlier. She was pulled into the 2022 election to support the very idea of public education. I think I just I just felt like we needed to make sure that our schools stayed safe. And it was really clear to me that in this current situation for this election, that there was a real threat to our schools. And the reality is we, we had lived it before. And that was really concerning to, I think, people who, who want education that is inclusive, that is following the law, following you know, ed code and California law, that values our teachers, our experts in, um, in content and what's happening in the classroom. Um, and what's best for students and for what's best for all students, right? Not just some of our students. She had worked on other campaigns, but 2022 was the first time she had run for office. And she had a lot to learn about how to file, how to raise money, and how to organize volunteers. And Caneo Together provided advice, and its support proved invaluable. Now Caneo Together is just sort of a known, right? It's just sort of a given, like, oh, it's this very influential successful machine, if you will. So, um, and I was, you know, obviously I knew coming into the race, having that endorsement would be, you know, really key and really helpful to me um, as a new candidate, somebody running for office for first time. People didn't necessarily know me. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people in the community, but, you know, there's still a lot of people to meet and to get to know. I was not part of the, um, you know, I'm not part of the I don't know what you would call it, the uh, leadership structure or the people kind of running running the city or anything like that. Um, so it was really great to have to have that that support to complement my campaign. The current trustees they they do things largely by the book. Um, they work in collaboration with a superintendent and administrative staff that is very forward-looking, um, that has made big changes on things like DEI and dress codes and other things that, that become political because the right wing makes them political, but are really just good policy in the 21st century. If you ask the right wing, uh, who are obsessed with, you know, transgender ideology and so forth, um, they'll tell you that the schools are in chaos. But the good, the good news is that the community didn't buy it. Uh, they, spent they spent all of 2022 trying to demonstrate that the district was off the rails and the community didn't buy any of it. The big picture John Cummings takes away? At a most basic level, the politics of a school board cannot just be managed during the few months surrounding an election. Uh, you have to be, you have to have the community on board all the time in between elections as well. There has to be advocacy. There has to be education of parents and community members. There has to be organization. 
because if one thing is for sure, it is that the right wing is very organized now. They have their talking points. They get fed the issues that are going to be the outrage of the day or the week or the month. And the side of good governance and sanity has to be exactly as organized as they are, and if not more so. And we have to be ready to rebut their accusations. We have to be ready to celebrate good governance when we see it and achievements when they happen. And then during election time, we have to be profoundly organized. We have to choose the right candidates and we have to have our messaging straight. Um, and that requires a lot of alliances between activists, community members, teachers, administrators, uh, and people who want to run for school board. The folks who are part of Caneo together are anything but complacent. In each one of the three trustee areas that were up for election in 2022, the opposition took 44% of the vote. What I'm worrying about now is I'm worrying about what that 44% means for the reputation of the school district and the perception that people have of the schools. You know, that, that doesn't go away just because the election is over. Have 44% of the public been become convinced that the schools are no good and that the teachers are grooming kids and, or I don't know. And what does that mean for the next cycle? Caneo Together is continuing to be active even after the election. For example, they're planning a report to the entire community, which Betsy Connolly told me is designed to share the good news about local schools and the many reasons for confidence and pride. The idea is to especially reach the 70% of households who do not currently have a school-aged child. A common talking point of the extremist candidates had been that local schools used to be good, and now they aren't, which Betsy Connolly says is so not true. At the end of this tunnel is an erosion of the public good. And the best way to get rid of the public good is to convince people it's not good. If we don't get organized and focus in on viable strategies to hold the line on preserving the public good, it will continue to erode. Betsy Connolly sees the preservation of the very idea of the public good as a challenge in Caneo Valley and in the country. After all, right-wing extremists have been undermining the idea that there is such a thing as the public good at least since the 1950s, when Milton Friedman wrote that only private interests were important. And we are seeing now that their end game is to dismantle public schools, which are perhaps the most concrete expression of the American idea that there is a public good and that the public good is promoted by public institutions controlled democratically. It's important to acknowledge that as a nation, we have far too often neglected our democratic institutions, such as school boards, and we've often forgotten to do our homework on who is running and what they stand for. Right-wing extremists are trying to exploit that vacuum of information and interest. It is up to those of us who believe in the power of democracy and public education to figure out ways to ensure that the public is informed and engaged. Because if extremists succeed in dismantling public schools, we will have lost a precious legacy that we might never be able to regain. Caneo Together provides an example of one way to support democracy and education. But Caneo Together isn't the only example out there in the country. I hope to bring other stories of folks standing up to extremists in future episodes. In the meantime, please explore our other resources at www.assistdemocracy.org, including a five-part podcast on how to run for school board for those of you who have taken the plunge. And if you are a school board candidate, 
someone supporting a school board candidate, or even if you're just an ally of public education, I hope you'll join our growing community by filling out the form on the Connect page of www.assistdemocracy.org. For now, this is Karen Chenoweth. Talk to you soon.